Father, silence is good. I, I know maybe for some it might feel a little bit awkward. But God, we're all moving at such a pace that we're not quiet enough. And we pray and ask for your blessing over our time together. And as we open your word, Lord God, may we please listen to the words as being from you. And I pray that you would speak from your word into our hearts and lives. And Lord, the message that you've given me, may they be your words and not mine. And anything that would come from me, may it not be heard, received, or even understood. But bless this time, Lord God, as we open your word, as we read it, as we're honest with ourselves about it. And I pray as we apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I was trying to get you guys to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 1. And it's, uh, it's the second letter that Paul's writing to a church in, uh, in Greece. You know, you think of the Aegean Sea and uh, you've got Athens. And just north of Athens on the coastline of the Aegean Sea is Thessalonica. And so Paul's writing to them, and he wrote the first letter, 1 Thessalonians. Now he's writing the second letter, which is in response to what they read of his first letter. And so this is kind of how they did it without email and text messaging. So it takes a little bit of time. And what's interesting about 2 Thessalonians is he starts right off with something near and dear to your heart as it is mine, judgment day. How's that for starting a letter? Now, when you hear the word judgment day, I should say the expression judgment day, what comes to mind when you hear judgment day? Like word association, what do you think about it? What, what kind of feelings conjure up uh, in, inside of you? Uh, are, are some of you like, yeah, I'm kind of sick and tired of hearing about judgment day. Or there is no judgment day. Or, yeah, I have fear and trepidation about judgment day. Because judgment day still seems to be in the public conscience. I mean, it's like every other year there seems to be a movie called Judgment Day, and there's some cataclysmic, you know, event that happens, and, and uh, Hollywood is still making them, which means we're still thinking about it, and we're still certainly paying for it to go watch that. As a matter of fact, last year there was a, uh, a movie called Left Behind, The Rise of the Antichrist. That was just back in January of 2023. So again, you know it's out there. People are thinking about it. All the religions, all the major religions of the world have within the belief system this idea of judgment, this idea that there will be a public accounting for our lives at some point. Even the Eastern religions with karma have this idea that there's going to be a day of reckoning. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to read as Paul's writing this letter back to them and feels the need to bring up the importance of judgment day. And what I'd like for you to do is to listen as I read the first 12 verses is he talks about a comfort that comes from Judgment Day. Hard to believe, maybe, but there's a comfort to it, and there's also a caution. And that's what I want you to listen for. We're going to look at Judgment Day. We're going to look at the comfort of Judgment Day, but we're also going to look at the caution of it. So with that in mind, if you'll just listen as I start in chapter 1 with verse 1, listening for the comfort of Judgment Day and the caution. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always thank God for you, brothers. This is right, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among the God's churches, about your endurance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. It is clear. 
evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you also are suffering, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. In that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. And in view of this, we always pray for you that God will consider you worthy of his calling and will by his power fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, it's a reading of God's word to you and to me. I hope you kind of maybe picked up on where Paul was comforting them and where he was cautioning them. So let's start with the comfort side because that's the one we like, and I want you to go back to verse 6. In verse 6, he says, Since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There's the first comfort, and it's a natural comfort. And what Paul is saying is to those who are enduring persecution by their afflictors, he's saying every wrong one day will be made right. And we kind of have that inherently, intrinsically in us. We know of some of the things that are going on, some of the injustices that have happened. I mean, they strike us in some ways deep down inside of who we are. We say, that's just not right. And we, we wish we could stop it. In some cases, we, we feel powerless and wonder why things aren't being stopped. But you can think of those things. Now, here's the harder thing to think about. You can think of those rights that need to be made wrong, but it's always easier to think about other people's wrongs that need to be made right. I think I said it wrong at the time right before that, but what about your wrongs and my wrongs? They need to be made right as well. What do we do with that? Well, we'll we're going to come back to that. But I, I just want you to recognize that, that Paul is encouraging them, saying all wrongs will be made right. There is a day coming in which that will be the case. And then secondly, a comfort I think comes just inherently from judgment day itself. And that is without a judgment day, without a judge, then anything we do means nothing. It's just a wild free-for-all. If there is no accountability, if there is no absolute right and wrong determined by a judge who then adjudicates every person's life, as like I said, all major religions have that in their belief system. It's, it's, it's intrinsic in us because we're made in the image of God. And if there's, if, if there's not that judgment day or that judge, then like I said, everything means nothing. So you just go live however you want to live and don't call anybody out because who are you to call them out? But we have a judge and we have a judgment day. And what that means, that's a promise that everything we do makes means something. It's important. So all the good things that you've done that you thought, no one saw what I was doing. No one even understands the motive I had for doing it. It was, it was a good motive. My friends, those are not forgotten. They will not be overlooked. Nor will the wrongs that we've done. Again, we're gonna, we'll, we'll come back to that. But that's another um, 
I think comfort that comes realizing that we have a judgment that will come, a judgment day that will come from a true judge. The third thing, and this is what I find to be interesting, is that Paul is speaking to people who are suffering for their beliefs. And he chooses to encourage them by talking about the affliction that they're, they're facing, that their afflictors will be afflicted. That the wrong that is happening to them will be made right. There is a promise of judgment that will make the suffering for Jesus easier to endure. That's, that's why it's there. He's trying to help them to endure the suffering. And the way he does that is he talks about that there will be a day in which all the wrongs that are being done to them will be made right. Now, it might not lessen the pain they're going through, but it certainly reduces the insult of what's happening and, and the, the just feeling lost like this will never be made right. And Paul is assuring them, no, it will be made right. And so there's the comfort. That's the comfort of Judgment Day. Now, here's the reality. And this is the thing. As I was going through this, I just thought, this is, this is not going to go well. Because you know the reality is, and for most of us in here, what I just read to you and what I just elaborated on briefly didn't really comfort you. You, you just, you just kind of heard it. I just kind of read it. And it just kind of maybe washed over us. But no, it, it, there wasn't a sense of, yes. As the Thessalonians, who when they received this letter, believing it to be the word of God, probably had a much different experience and connection than we just did. And why is that? Well, I'll tell you one reason. It's because we thankfully, by the grace of God, we live in a free country. Where the chance of our primary sufferings, and by primary sufferings, I mean like arrest and imprisonment, and death for our beliefs is next to non-existent. Although, who knows? It seems like it's kind of getting a little bit cattywampus. And where that goes, we don't know. Now, we might also encourage secondary sufferings, but even, even those aren't that prominent. And by secondary sufferings, I mean where you might be passed over for a promotion because of your belief. Or, or someone might angrily respond to you um, because of your belief. Or you might lose a job because of your belief. Or you might become less popular because of your belief. Or you might not make the team because of your belief. Or you might be excluded from things because of your belief. Those, those are out there. Uh, again, I think they're probably few and far between. And maybe that's changing as, as I was just saying. But for that reason, we don't really get traction with what I just read. But I think the second reason is, is more likely the explanation for why we just kind of read that one. Huh, okay. Uh, and, and I, at times, I, I'm not excluding myself from this either. Okay? But I think the second reason is because we're not really, we're really not living our faith out in such a way that it raises the possibility of suffering. We are in a culture that is all about comfort. It is all around us. We swim in it. And it, so it is, it, is, it is impossible for a fish not to get wet. It is impossible for us as we swim in the currents of our culture that's all about comfort and convenience 
it's impossible for us not to get wet. It's impossible for us not to seek the creaturely comforts, for us to not kind of step out there and put ourselves in positions where potentially suffering might follow. But here's the crazy thing about this. And, and I, I have, I mean, I've, down here when we have prayer, I have gone down to people that are praying, and I said, pray for me, because I find the older I get, the more I'm leaning into comfort. And I don't want that, but I feel the pull. I do, and I don't like that about myself. But think about this. Jesus said, this was his invitation. It's an invitation to everybody, everyone in this room. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. And then what's the second thing he says? Take up his cross. He was using a symbol of sacrifice and suffering. And what he was saying is, you want to come after me because of my profound teaching. You want to come after me because of my compassion. You want to come after me because of my intellect and, and the ways that I can say things that, that open up and unlock life. He goes, if you want to come after me, you have to accept that there's going to be suffering with that. Because I am inviting you to follow me in a world that does not follow me. In some cases, is quite scared and fearful of me. And will do anything to snuff out what I'm trying to do. And so we, we have that Peter who would understand what it means to want to kind of like run from persecution because if you recall, Peter denied Jesus because he saw what was happening. Peter later, after he becomes a follower, after he's seen Jesus resurrected, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. He says, um, but when you do what is good and suffer... If you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow him in his steps. So that's why we read this and kind of go, ah. You know what we typically do when we see God's people suffering? And, and I, I, when I was thinking about this, what I was drawn to, because it still st is etched in my mind, was back... Uh, a few years ago when ISIS w w paraded out these Christians on a shoreline and they were all dressed in orange jumpsuits. And behind each one of them was an ISIS member who then slit their throats and beheaded them because they were Christian. And you just look at that you go, what in the world? H how can that be happening? And it's like, God, do something. That, that's kind of our response. God, do something. To which I believe... God says, I am. I'm doing something. And I think if he was here, he would direct us to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, in which Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. So when we're saying, God, do something, he's saying, I am doing something. He's saying, in the lives of my people, I'm giving them faith that perseveres and endures so that the suffering that they're incurring are for people to see who did not see Jesus' sufferings, but they see Jesus Christ's followers suffering, and they make the connection. And God does something amazing with that. And so when we plead, God, do something, might he just be doing something? And maybe when you face suffering for, for following Jesus and you want, God, get me out of this, might he be saying, I need to complete in those who are causing the suffering 
the sufferings of Christ. Not that Jesus' death wasn't enough. It's just that those who are causing you to suffer weren't there to see the suffering of Jesus on a cross. But if they see someone who is dedicated to him and suffers on his behalf, then God can do an amazing connection there in that way. And so my question is for all of us, have you suffered for Jesus? Are you suffering for Jesus? And I don't ask that to raise guilt. I'm not doing that at all. I'm asking you to reflect on that. And if Jesus' invitation involves suffering, and Peter says he set the example, and if you've chosen to follow him, as I've chosen to follow him, then we have to ask ourselves, does our life look like his? And there's other ways we can ask that question, but we certainly can't take suffering and, like, throw it off. We can say, well, I can look at whether I'm gentle and whether I'm kind and loving and push suffering to the side. We just, we just can't do that. Jesus doesn't give us that out. He doesn't give us that option. And so Paul comforts those who are really suffering for Jesus with the fact that there would be a day that all wrongs would be made right. Now, last thing before we move on to the caution, and this just kind of jumped out at me. I thought it was challenging initially when I thought to myself, okay, hold on a second here. Paul is comforting people who are enduring suffering with the thought that, hey, those who are inflicting upon you suffering, their day is coming. And then I'm thinking, well, Jesus said to love your enemies. So how do you, how do you balance those two? How do those two come together? And I, I had to step back and think about that for a minute. And certainly what I had to come to realize was that God's mercy and love, or God's mercy and love doesn't nullify justice. That simultaneously they can be together. And where greater to look for that than on the cross of Christ? When God, out of his mercy and love for us, but at the same time having to satisfy his justice, because he's a holy God, sends Christ, Jesus, who lived the perfect life in your place and in my place, because we couldn't do it. And then Jesus dies a substitutionary death to absorb the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and then God raises him three days later to say, this is the guy. So simultaneously on the cross, God showed I can be just and I can be merciful at the same time. And so in our case, and when we're suffering... What we need to do is first we need to remember, and when we struggle with this, this concept, is because we tend to think of love as a feeling, but it's an action. And in the midst of being persecuted and suffering for Christ, what we need to do is we need to cling to Colossians 1.24. We don't have to like what's happening. We don't have to say, thank you, sir. Can I have another? But we pray for them, and we do good to our enemies. Because that's what followers of Jesus do. And we hope that a connection will be made. And who of all people to write this, both in Colossians 1.24 and here in 2 Thessalonians, is Paul, who was formerly Saul, who persecuted Christians, who was there when the first martyr of Christianity happened, which was Stephen, who was being stoned to death for his faith, and he stood there receiving the, the rocks, being pelted by the rocks, and he was looking up into heaven, and he was praising Jesus Christ. you got to think that impacted Paul. Who becomes arguably the greatest New Testament Christian of all time. So in the midst of suffering, 
Might we understand that God is doing something. And he wants to do it through you. And he wants to do it through me. So there's the comfort. Well, what about the caution? We'll look at verse 7. In verse 7, the last part of verse 7 says, This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What's the caution? The caution is that Jesus is coming back with vengeance. It will be anything like his first advent, anything like his first coming, which was in obscurity. He came as a servant. He came and subjected himself to other authorities, but not the second time. The second time he comes as captain, king, and CEO of the world. And he comes in power. He comes in majesty. And he comes submitting to no one but all submit to him. That's how he's coming. And says that he comes with a flaming fire. Now, fire in the New Testament in particular, it's Old Testament as well too. But fire is used metaphorically. Some of you, uh, when we think about hell, we think about flames. And, 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 and those that go to hell are going to be like burning the whole time. I, I don't believe that's what hell is. And I'll, I'm going to make that point in just a moment. I think when the writers of Scripture try to describe as God inspires them what, what hell's going to be like, I think they're, they're grasping and they're using words that have limits to what they can communicate. And that is what a metaphor does. A metaphor symbolizes something that, that can only be understood to the limit that that word makes sense. But the reality is always further than that. I mean, think about it. Whenever you've seen a, a scenery, you're like, this is amazing. Or you try to describe some, some incredible um, moment that you had. You try to describe it using words, and people just don't get it like you did. Or you even try to take a picture, like the Grand Canyon is amazing. But does the, capture, does the picture really capture the essence of the canyon? No, it doesn't. So reality is always greater. And what do we take by that? It, it, we take the caution that Jesus' coming in vengeance will be worse than flaming fire. And for that, we must understand the judgment day as caution. Now, we, as followers of Jesus, those in this room who are followers of Jesus, if you notice the standard of measure by which people will be judged is in verse 8. He says, taking vengeance from flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel. You see, for followers of Jesus, for those who know God and obey the gospel, and order is important, my friends, order is extremely important there. We don't obey the gospel and then we know God. That's religion. That's man trying to get to God on his terms. He says, first we know God, which means we intimately know God. We know God loves us. We know that he's shown us this love in Christ and that we put our faith and trust in him and are now loved by God and we know him and now we obey the gospel. So order is critical. And to those that know God and that obey, the, obey God, this caution is not for us. As a matter of fact, if you're wondering, and, and we no, have to notice the connection, if we want to know, do we really know God? Are we really obeying him? Paul connects, he uses the word evidence of this. 
He tells the Thessalonians. What does he tell them is evidence that they know God and are obeying the gospel? It's enduring suffering. Again, there's that connection. And he says, to those who know God and obey the gospel, as evidenced by their suffering for the, for the cause of Christ, he says, you will be considered worthy and you will find rest. A reference to when Jesus returns, this amazing day in which we will eternally be with him forever. So that means to those on the other side. Now let's talk, who's this caution for? It is for those who don't know God. They might know of him. They might know about him, but they don't know him personally. And they are not obeying the gospel. Those are the ones that need to be cautioned. You see, if they don't know him, because they've chosen not to know him, there's going to be consequences to that. As a matter of fact, um, in James chapter 1, well, let me, let me step back. What is this consequences? Let me, he, he gets very specific. If you look at verse number 9, what, what is the consequences to those who don't know God and to those who are not obeying the gospel? He says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from what? What does it say? From the Lord's presence. Ah, we're kind of bumping into hell now. We tend to think of hell as a place. I'm not saying it's not a place, and I don't, I don't know where it is. The Bible's not very clear on where it is. Some people think it's up in space. Some people think it's down in the middle of the earth. Some people think it's in another dimension. The Bible's not really clear about where it is, but the Bible is very clear about what it is. And it is eternal torment and anguish, but not the fiery kind. Not like, ooh, ooh, ah, not that kind. It is being eternally apart from the presence of God. That's what he says right there in verse 9. What is it? It's the destruction that comes from the absence, the Lord's presence. Well, to understand that, let's think about for a minute. Let's think about God's presence. God's presence is the source right now. As God is present with his creation, it is the source of all love and joy and peace and wonder and amazement. God is the source of of all that, all these things come through God, from God, for us. James says it this way in 117, every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So the presence of God, let's just take the sunshine, let's just use the sunshine for a moment. The, I mean, in the Pacific Northwest, it's right about now, you kind of go, I need some sun, I need to, so so by the presence of God, uh, and in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, um, Jesus himself says that God allows the rain on those who know God and those who don't know God. See, right now, God is present. And because he's present, those who don't know God receive the rain from God. But let's not talk about rain, right? We, we understand rain here. Let's talk about sun and the sunshine and the warmth of that. Now imagine if God just went, and took it away forever, every moment of every day, for eternity. It's like you're stuck in this deep, dark, cold, damp cave, never to see it again. That is what hell is. Hell is the absence of God. And out of dignity for everything, every person that God's ever created, 
He gives us what we've always wanted. God does not send us to hell. What he does is he gives us what we've wanted our entire lives. And if in our entire lives we don't want God, we don't want to surrender to God, we don't care about God, we don't think about God, then he says, all right, then I will give you eternally what you have wanted every day of your life. So we, when we reject God, we send ourselves to this place of anguish and torment over realizing why did I not seek to know God? Just, again, going back to my sunshine analogy, sitting there shivering, realizing I once had the sun and now I don't. And to live in that state forever, that's a long time. But God doesn't send us there. We do that ourselves. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, and those who knock, it is opened. Now before we move on, let's be mindful and remember that there is only one person who's ever felt the depth of having God turn his back on him. And that was Jesus. On the cross, he did not deserve to be up there, but on the cross, he questions God and says, why have you forsaken me? It was in that moment when God, because he put all the sin of the world onto him, onto Jesus, that God turns and his presence is gone for three days. This is... A statement that Jesus says, which in prior he says, to those who were hurling insults at him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That, my friends, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God turned his back on him so that we could see the face of God, so that we could be forgiven by God. I, I hope you feel and sense the weight of that punishment that he endured on our behalf. And then it says that this... Destruction is what in verse 9? Eternal. Eternal. That, that seems like a long time, and people really struggle thinking, how is it fair that you have temporal sin met with eternal separation? It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Well, keep in mind, God is giving what people wanted all their lifetimes. He's not going to send them into eternity and then force them after that to accept him. He's just not going to do that. He's going to let them have what they wanted and it will be an eternal existence. Secondly, what we have to understand is that God stands outside of time. He's eternal. He's infinite. So that when we sin against God, we are sinning eternally and the punishment correspondingly is eternal and infinite. And then lastly, we have to remember that e the eternal punishment isn't because of our sins. Those are simply manifestations of the real reason for why we are, are, are not in relationship with God and in his presence. It's because we've rejected God. That is the reason. And when you reject the one and only way that there is to salvation through Christ, then you simply have culmination of your own decisions or lack thereof.
So there you have the comfort. <clears throat> there you have the caution. And aren't you glad you came this morning? <clears throat> well, let me finish with, on a good note. Let's go to the judgment day itself. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, in that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admitted by all those who have believed, admired, excuse me, admired by all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. And skip down to verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him. What he's talking about is something amazing that's going to happen at Jesus' return. Jesus is going to come back. Now, how he comes back and what precedes him coming back, that, that's not for today, and you can get into the class that starts in March about end times that Dwight Anderson will be leading, and you can get some of your uh, questions answered there. But when Jesus comes back, what this is saying is he's saying that Jesus is going to be glorified. We got that. But who else does he say is going to be glorified? We're going to be glorified. How are we going to be glorified? Paul says, by him. Who's him? Jesus. So when Jesus comes back, what happens is that our bodies are resurrected. Everybody's resurrected. And in our resurrected bodies comes the presence of Christ in his fullness and in its finality. You see, we have the Spirit of God inside of us, it's a, but the Bible calls that a down payment. It's a deposit of something greater that's to come. And so when Jesus comes, we're resurrected, and what comes inside of us is the full presence of Christ. And so everything that attracted you to Jesus, everything now becomes yours. And our bodies are glorified, and we live on a new earth, and we can't sin. So all the, 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 the fear, all the anxiety, all the worry, all the anger, all the bitterness, all the resentment, all the addictions, gone because of the glorification of Christ and what he's done for us. John Stott says it like this. He says, we'll be like filaments in a bulb that when God clicks the power switch on, and the electric current comes running through us, we will radiate like Jesus. Man, I can get into that. I can get into radiating like Jesus because the, the inner battle struggle, it's real, man, and it's tiring and it's exhausting. And there's a day where that will not be for those who are followers of Jesus. But then also, it says that Jesus... Or, or that, so Jesus is glorified as we are transformed and we have our new bodies. But then we glorify him by what? It says that we admire him back. And that is the difference between religion and relationship. It is when you live your life to please Jesus and to admire him for what you already have, not what you're trying to get. And all that's happening on judgment day. That is what we have to wait for as Jesus is glorified in followers of Jesus, and they are glorified in him. And so let me close with this, because Paul says he changes. He's got us all thinking forward, but then he says in verse 11, and in view of this, so he's talking about, now I'm back today. Now I'm back in the present. He says, and in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling and will, by his power, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. My challenge for you this week, would you please regularly admire Jesus? Start there. Regularly admire Jesus. Make that a regular part of who you are to live the, a, a good life of following him in faith. And then secondly, would you please risk the possibility of suffering, doing something for the glory of Christ. Whether that's standing up and saying something, 
whether that is sharing your faith to somebody, whether that's reconciling, be the initiator of the reconciliation. You realize, I'm going to suffer in this. I, I'm risking the suffering. There's a possibility I'm going to suffer in this, but you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to stop. I'm, I'm, I'm following my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered for me. And I promise you, you won't regret it, and I won't either. God, thank you for your love for us. I pray your blessing over us, Lord God, as we try to get our hands around something that in our cultural our culture and our country is so hard to fathom. But that, Jesus, was your invitation to us. Take up our cross. I pray we would do that for your glory. In Jesus' name.